Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the San Diego, now international, in a manner of speaking, Ramana Maharshi study Zoom group from San Diego. And Michael James has, again, year after year, agreed to be joining us today to answer your questions. Michael joins us live from London, the first Sunday of every month. We are on at 10 a.m. in the morning on Sundays here, whichever time it might be around you. You can just find out on Google. If you are watching on YouTube and you would like to join us for Michael's questions, you can easily do it by sending me uh, to my email email address, which I'll give you in a second, uh, your name and address, and I'll put you immediately on the list. Um, and you are welcome to join us actually any Sunday you wish, since we're here every Sunday of the year for 90 minutes when Michael's not with us. And when Michael's joining us, we're here for the full two hours. I'm Ted Henry, and my email address is newsguy55 at aol.com, N-E-W-S-G-U-I, newsguy55 at AOL. Welcome, Michael. It's great to have you here. Our first couple of questions are doozies, uh, and I was having a chance to speak to Arnold as he uh, has invited me to call him, although I think his name is pronounced close to my pronunciation of Arnold. And he's there from Sri Lanka, looking up into the sky right now for guidance. <laughs> <laughs> so let's begin with uh, his question. And I urge people to listen closely because I'm only going to repeat it once. And it's it's loaded with uh, information and taking us this way and that way towards his question's main point. So Arnold says, my question is about doubt I have. Although the path of Advaita Vedanta deeply resonates with me intuitively, he says, experientially and logically, there is still one seed of doubt left for me to wrestle with. Bhagavan stated in Uladu Narpadu that because I see the world accepting one fundamental that becomes many is certainly the one best option. However, I feel there is a second option. From Bhagavan, we learn that what only is, which we can refer to as pure consciousness for brevity, is the one fundamental, and that multiplicity arises with ego, which in itself also has no reality. On the other hand, materialist, materialist is his word here, proposed one fundamental is matter of energy, which somehow gives rise to consciousness as an emergent property. Now, let us momentarily assume that the materialists are correct. If consciousness is indeed an emergent property, then investigating this emergent consciousness also could potentially lead to the conclusion that consciousness is fundamental, which, while actually it is matter as it precedes it. In this case, Almost done. In this case, it is not the one fundamental that becomes many, but rather the many matter that gives rise to the one fundamental. This realization creates doubt, as it suggests that it is the manifested consciousness that obscures the fundamental reality of matter, the exact opposite of what Bhagavan teaches us. So in conclusion, those are my words. Investigating the self, be it fundamental or an emergent property, both could lead to the same dissolution of the ego, which in my mind both confirms and denies 
the teachings. And one last paragraph. The mind has endless capacity to confuse as it holds on to its existence, it seems. There are many more aspects to explore regarding this train of thought that has confused my mind, but I trust that you understand the essence of it and can shed some light on my doubt. A whopper of a question, and I turn it over now to Michael, and I'm anxious to hear your response because I know you have a good one. Okay. Um, yes, this is actually a good question. Um, the verse um, that Arnaud is uh, referring to is verse one of the main text of Uludranapadu. In other words, it's the starting point. Before it comes, uh, the two Mangalam verses, but the main text, this is the starting point. And what Bhagavan says in this verse is about the meaning of the verse because we see the world, Accepting one fundamental that has a power that becomes many is certainly the one best option. The picture of names and forms, the one who sees, the cohesive screen and the pervading light, all these are he who is oneself. So the question is about the first sentence. Um, Arnold points out that there is a second option. Uh, Bhagavan doesn't deny that. In fact, when Bhagavan says it is the one best option, the implication is that there are many options. But out of all the many options, this is the one best option. The fact that there are other options is made very clear, for example, in the next verse, in which Bhagavan uh, refers to other options. He refers to um, what he says in the next verse is, um, each religion initially accepts three fundamentals. Those three fundamentals, he doesn't say it here, but in the extended version of Abdi, he explained what those three fundamentals are, God, world, and soul. And then he goes on to say, contending only one fundamental stands as three fundamentals, or th three fundamentals are always actually three fundamentals, is only so long as ego exists. In other words, all the there are many different options, and uh, uh, disputing about them is possible only so long as ego exists. And then he goes on to say, "I perishing." That means implies ego perishing. Standing in the state of oneself, in other words, standing in our own real state, is best. So Bhagavan is not does not expect us to engage in. Uh, disputation with others um, because there's no point people believe whatever they want to believe so we are not here to yeah. argue with other philosophical viewpoints but we need to understand why Bhagavan has said this is the one best option he actually he gives a reason in this first sentence why it is the one best option but the, the first clause Nam Ulahum Kandalal, because we see the world, is the reason why he says this is the one best option. So to understand what is the logical connection between this first clause, because we see the world, and the uh, main clause, accepting one fundamental has a power uh, that uh, becomes many, is certainly the one best option. We need to think carefully about it, why this is the one best option. Um, 
the world is that is the world is a is a a collection of many phenomena, but all those many phenomena appear in whose view only in the view of ourselves. So when he says, because we see the world, in Tamil, the first word actually is um, is we. So that's the important word. Nam means we, Ulohum means world, Kandalau means because of seeing. In other words, because we see this world. In English, because it comes at the beginning of the clause. In Tamil, the subject Nam, we, comes at the beginning of the clause. Um, though he uses a plural form of the first person here, uh, in other words, instead of saying I, he says we. Um, in Tamil, there are two words for we. There's nam and nangal. Nam, uh, if you say nam, you're including the person you're speaking to. That is us, we including you. Uh, if you say nangal, you're excluding the, the other person. So, Bhagavan often uses this inclusive we um, in his when talking or when writing poetry. He's not actually, he's using this inclusive uh, um, we, not actually, in a, though it's plural in form, it is singular intent, but in, in its intent. Um, that is, he uses this word because if he says I, He's excluding us. If he says you, it's like he's talking down at us. But when he says we, he's including all of us. Um, so, but from the perspective of each one of us, there is a world out there of many objects, many phenomena, many people. All these appear in whose view? Only in the view of ourselves. That is, we, we, we generally assume that other people are also seeing the world like us, but we don't actually see their point of view. We only see our point of view. So from our point of view, this world appears, it, 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 it's in our view that the world appears. Since we are one and the world is many, this, that is, <clears throat> the world is, is a collection of objects. Objects appear in the view of the subject. The subject is ourself as ego. So since objects appear only in the view of the subject, they seem to exist only in the view of the subject. So objects depend for their semi-existence upon the semi-existence of ourself as subject. So the many depend upon the one. If, if, if we didn't see, why do we suppose that world exists? Because we see it. Actually, we have, we have, there's no evidence that the world actually exists. All we can say about the world is it seems to exist. And why does it seem to exist? Because it appears in our view. But just because something appears doesn't mean it actually exists. You can, you can see a snake, but doesn't act, it isn't actually a snake. That is, you can see a rope, mistake it to be a snake, you, though you are seeing a snake, that snake doesn't actually exist. So just because we see something, just because something appears to us, doesn't mean that it actually exists. However, whether this world is real or illusory, the one thing that certainly exists is ourself. Because if we didn't exist, 
we couldn't be aware of anything else, whether real or illusory. We couldn't be aware, firstly, of ourselves, nor could we be aware of anything else, whether real or illusory. So the one thing that must be real is ourself. We may not be what we seem to be, that is our identity. We we need to we 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 have good reason to doubt our identity. The one thing we cannot doubt is our own existence and our awareness. So we certainly exist. This world appears only in our view. So this world depends upon us. And this world doesn't always appear in our view. Uh, phenomena appear only when we rise as ego. In waking and dream, we rise as ego, and consequently, we're aware of phenomena. In sleep, we do not rise as ego, and consequently, we are not aware of phenomena. So phenomena appear, in our view, only when we rise as ego, not when we remain as we actually are. So because the world seems to exist only in our view, it depends upon us for its seeming existence. If we understand this, then this um, this will answer the question that uh, Arnold has asked uh, has questioned. Uh, what he says is he feels there's a second option. Well, actually, materialism is one of many alternative options. Materialism is actually the crudest of all the options because the the materialism seems true only in the minds of those who are very outward looking. If we begin to look within ourselves, then that is the more inclined we are to look within ourselves, the more we will question the reality of the world that seems to exist when we look outwards. So um, it, for those who's, who who whose minds are very outward going, this world seems to be very real. But actually, the that is, how do we, we, one thing we know for certain, we as awareness or consciousness certainly exist. But do we know that um, um, physical matter exists? No, all we can say about physical matter and physical phenomena in general is they seem to exist. They appear in our view. Just because they appear doesn't mean they actually exist. And what actually appears in our view, as Bhagavan says in um, in verse uh, 6 of Uludhunapadu, Bhagavan gives his, his answer to materialism here. The world is a form of five sense impressions, not anything else. He said, there, Andrew, that means not anything else. The five sense impressions means sights, sounds, tastes, smells, and tactile sensations. If you take away these, where is any world? So the world as we know it consists only of these five kinds of sense impressions. And these in sense impressions are impressions for the five sense organs. Since the mind alone perceives the world by way of the five sense organs, is there a world besides the mind? He asks. Uh, that's a rhetorical question. The obvious answer is no. That is, the world is 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 nothing but a series of a collection of sense impressions, and sense impressions 
are known by whom? By the mind. So sense impressions are actually mental impressions. Sights, sounds, tastes, smells, tactile sensations are just mental impressions. So we don't actually see a material world. All we experience is mental impressions of a material world. So just because we experience mental impressions of a material world doesn't mean a material world actually exists. In, in When we are dreaming, we, we experience exactly the same kind of um, mental impressions. We experience sights, sounds, tastes, smells, and tactile sensations. And while we are dreaming, but it's, the world seems, these, these five kinds of sense impressions give us the impression that there's a world out there, and that world seems to us very real, so long as we are dreaming. Why does the world appear real, the dream world appear real, so long as we are dreaming? There is a simple reason for that. What is actually real is only ourself. But when we are dreaming, we experience ourselves as a body in that dream world. Because we are real, if that body, since that body seems to be ourselves, that body seems to be real. And since that body is a part of the dream world, the whole dream world seems to be real. So, so long as we take the dream body to be ourselves, the dream world inevitably seems to be real. As soon as we wake up from dream, that is, as soon as we leave that dream and come to this dream, we immediately recognize, oh, it was just a dream, it wasn't real. What a moment before seemed so real, suddenly we're able to recognize that it was unreal. What is the change that takes place that enables us to recognize that what seemed so real a moment before now uh, seems unreal. The difference is because while we were dreaming, we experienced that dream body as ourself. As soon as we wake up, our identification is switched from that dream body to this present body, uh, which seems to be a material body, just as the dream body seems to be a material body, but actually, according to Bhagavan, is just another dream body. But because our our identification with that dream body is severed at the moment of waking up. As soon as it is severed, we're able to recognize the unreality of, dream, of the dream world. But so long as we experience that dream body as ourself, the dream world seemed to be ourself. So the, 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 um, the materialists, or physicalists as they are called, are. this is not talking about people who materialist in the usual sense in which it's used. A materialist is a person who's very much concerned about material things. In, in philosophy, in metaphysics, a materialist or a physicalist is someone who believes that the primary reality is physical matter. That is a very, very, um, a very, um, that is an assumption built on very shaky foundations. We, we have no actual evidence that any su such thing, any physical things actually exist. All we can say about physical things is that they seem to exist. We have, there's no evidence in our experience that can, that, uh, that can, um, that, that can, 
proved to us that any such thing as a material world exists. So the existence of a material world is a mere assumption. The material world seems real because we take this body to be ourself. So long as we take this body to be ourself, this world seems to be real because because we take this body to be ourself, since we are real, this body seems to be real. And since this body is a part of the world, the whole world seems to be real. But just because it seems to be real doesn't mean that it is actually real. The only thing that we can say certainly is real, certainly exists, is our is our self, our, our self as consciousness. That is, as consciousness, we certainly exist. Because if we didn't exist as consciousness or awareness, we could not be aware of anything, whether the thing that we're aware of may be real or unreal. But the, we who are aware of it must be real. We may not be what we seem to be. Now we seem to be this body. That's a false identity. So that is false. But our existence and our awareness are real and indubitably real. That, so the, uh, assuming that, that that is, that's why Bhagavan said this is the one best option. Because everything appears only in the mind. And the mind rises from the fundamental awareness I am, and it subsides back into that fundamental awareness I am. And even when mind rises, we can, that is, we are aware I am in waking, in dream, and in sleep. That is the one continuity. Um, we can actually, um, we can actually disprove materialism uh, very simply if we consider our own experience. That is, when it is said that material things exist, but material things exist only in the view of us ourselves who take this material body to be ourselves. But are we actually this material body? If we were, if we were this body, we could not. If this body were what we actually are, we could not be aware of ourselves without being aware of this body. But clearly, in dream. We're aware of ourselves without being aware of this body. The body that we're aware of as ourself in dream, though it seems to be the same body as this, it's actually a different body. If our, if our body in dream is injured, when we wake up, this body is not injured. So they they are though they seem to be uh, that is our I while we are dreaming, we seem to be have the same identity. We seem to be the same person. But actually, the body in dream is a different body to this body. So since we're aware of ourselves uh, in dream, without being aware of this body, this body cannot be uh, what we actually are. And since we are now aware of ourselves, without being aware of the dream body, the dream body cannot be what we actually are. What about then the mind? The mind seems to be ourself in both waking and dream, the same mind. But we're aware of ourselves in sleep when there is no mind. So the mind cannot be what we actually are. So since, since this material body is not what we actually are, all our, all our experience of material things is based upon our awareness of ourselves as this material body. When we're not aware of ourselves as this body, we're not aware of anything else. 
So the, the appearance of material phenomena is based upon the false identification of ourself with this material body. That, that means the, the materialist view is on extremely um, shaky ground. That is, most of modern science, not all scientists are materialists. Some scientists are religious people, so they believe that there's both matter and spirit. But, but the, the fundamental assumption, whether, whether they are materialists or dualists, whether they accept the whether they say only physical matter exists or whether they say physical matter and mind exist or and spirit exists, whichever they say, all science is based on the assumption that the world exists. That is a, an assumption for which there is no evidence. That is, science is supposed to be evidence-based. But the fundamental assumption of science is that the world is real. Whether whether the scientists are materialists or they are um, or, or they are um, uh, dualists, they all assume that the world that the material world exists, that the material world is real. But there's absolutely no evidence for that. That that is, we we have no evidence for what we are now experiencing is anything other than a dream. Because what everything that we experience in this state, we could equally well experience in a dream. So since we have no evidence that this is anything other than a dream, we have no evidence that any of these things exist independent of our view of them. That is, in everything that we see in a dream exists only in our own mind, only in our own view. It has no independent existence. The world that seems to be out there is not actually out there. It's only in our own mind. This, there's, there's nothing in that we experience in this waking state that gives us any evidence that this present waking state is anything other than a dream. So whereas what Bhagavan refers to in this first um, uh, verse of Uludhunapadu, accepting one fundamental, but has a power that becomes many, he doesn't say the fundamental becomes many. That's very important. What becomes many is the power. That power he's referring to there is the power of Maya. Maya becomes all this, but the fundamental, namely our own being, always remains as it is. It doesn't actually become anything. So accepting one fundamental that ha has a power that becomes many Bhagavan says that is the best option. The very worst option is the materialist option, because the materialist option is an option for which is based on absolutely no evidence whatsoever. That is, science prides itself on being evidence-based, but the, it's, the very basis of science is without evidence. That is the fact that there's, there's a... Science is based on a metaphysical assumption, namely an assumption that the material world exists and, and is real. There is no evidence whatsoever for that assumption. So uh, that is science, and I'm not, uh, that is science is fine 
within its own sphere. That is, so long as the world seems to be real, um, the findings of science are very useful to us. Nowadays, we have so much technology and everything. Of course, the findings of science are both beneficial and harmful. We, we have all this technology which we can go, put to good use, but we can also use this technology for um, for destruction, for creating bombs and all, all types of things. So science is, 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 uh, is potentially useful as far as our existence in this world is concerned. But that doesn't mean that science is real. Within the dream, science seemed to be real. Within the dream, there seems to be a law of gravity. In your dream, if you jump off the top of a tall building, in most dreams, you'll come tumbling down and hurt yourself. Um, of course, there are some dreams when we dream we're able to fly, but that's another matter. But generally, the, 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 all these laws of physics, they're all a part of this dream. So they, the, the fact that, um, that science has discovered so much um, it seems to have acquired so much knowledge about how this material world works doesn't mean that the material world is real. All they're studying is an appearance, and they're finding out how that appearance appears to work. That's all. Moreover, another thing that many philosophers of science are, are very well aware of is all science tells us about the material world is how it behaves. It doesn't tell us actually what, what, what is matter, what is physical matter. Nobody knows. Science cannot tell us what is physical matter. It, all, it can, all science can do is to study the behavior of what seems to be physical matter. So science is, a, is an investigation of the appearance. Whereas Bhagavan's path is a, an investigation of the reality, because everything that appears, appears only in the view of ourself as ego. And ego itself is an appearance because it rises from, it rises in waking and dream, it subsides in sleep. So since ego is impermanent, it is not real. But there's what is the reality? And so all other things depend for their seeming reality upon the seeming reality of ourself as ego. And this ego depends for its seeming reality upon the real existence of ourself as, as we actually are, as such it, as pure being awareness. So the, the science that Bhagavan has taught us, the science of self-investigation, is metaphysically a far more sound science than material science. Arnold, does that answer, does that adequately answer your question? Is that a satisfactory answer for you? Or are you still uh, beset with doubts? Well, thank you, Michael, in any case. Um, uh, everything you just said is indisputable and, and, and was in fact known to me. However, still the doubt remains. There are so many options. Um, if you want to remove yeah. all doubts, you need to know the reality of yourself. Yes, and uh, according to Bhagavad teachings, we do that by investigating ourselves. Yes. And my, my let's say, my thought experiment 
which I try to express in my question is, you know, um, it is a thought experiment. You know, I, I, in my question, I stated, you know, uh, uh, except for a moment, the materialists are true. I think that you, I hope you agree that, you know, either consciousness, the self is fundamental, uh, is the one fundamental or, you know, it's an emergent property. So, you know, the, the, the majority of the people think whether they are thinking it right or not right, that's another question, but they assume that consciousness and life arises from matter. You know why? If we assume... Yes, okay. Eh? <laughs> okay, you continue. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people... Yeah, yeah. So, but, so if that is the case, if it is indeed so that consciousness, as we experience it as ourself, as our ego, yeah. how we see the world, I mean, if this is an emergent property instead of a fundamental property, my question is, my doubt is, what would, would that mean something for the teachings of the whole Advaita teachings? Uh, if, 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 if consciousness is actually an emergent property instead of a fundamental property, because if consciousness is an emergent property and we are going to investigate that property of that consciousness as an emergent property, we could still follow your whole line of thought and say, you know, the world appears to be a reality, but it is not. Right. Because it's the same quality you're talking about. It's the same consciousness. However, it appears as an emergent property as an, instead of a um, fundamental property. Okay. Does it make they, any they, sense? They, they, yeah. they, I, I can answer that in various ways. Firstly, consciousness is not a property. Consciousness is is fundamental. If, if, you, yeah. if properties are that is, there must be something that has a property. But what has the property of consciousness? Only what is conscious has that property. And what is conscious? That is the the modern uh, philosophy and science is trying to understand consciousness, looking in the wrong direction. They are trying. I completely to agree with you. They they're trying to, They're trying to find consciousness among the objects. That is, Western philosophy has developed in a very different way to Eastern philosophy. Eastern philosophy, we can say, is two to three thousand years ahead of Western philosophy. That is. About 3,000 years ago, one of the earliest systems of philosophy in India was Sankhya. Sankhya in Sankhya, there are two things. There's Purusha and Prakriti. But if we, if we leave aside all those terms and so many other concepts in Sankhya, what Sankhya basically is, it is a subject-object dualism. But Purusha is subject. Prakriti is all objects. That is why the mind, meaning all the thoughts and perceptions and memories and feelings and emotions and everything, that's all part of Prakriti. Consciousness is something separate from everything that is known. So both Sankhya, the, the Sankhya philosophers 3,000 years ago made this fundamental distinction between subject and object. 
where it's in Western philosophy about um, uh, 400 years or so ago, Descartes developed a form of dualism, but a more superficial dualism, because Descartes' dualism is not subject-object dualism. It is mind-body dualism. Whereas the, the, those 3,000 years ago, those Sankhya philosophies, philosophers recognized that the mind is also, mind as object, is also a part of, it's also an object. So the, the dualism from which uh, Indian philosophy developed about 3,000 years ago is a far more fundamental dualism. Advaita doesn't accept that dualism. Because according to Advaita, but that is the assumption the Sankhya, Sankhya, the Sankhya philosophers, the assumption they made is that there are two things. There's subject or purusha and objects or prakriti. According to Advaita, the objects exist only in the view of the subject. And the subject is, well, it's not made so clear in classical Advaita, but Bhagavan, in, in, in the refined form of Advaita taught by Bhagavan, it is very, very clear. Objects all appear only in the view of the subject. And subject itself is just ego. It's not real. It appears and it disappears. So there's something more fundamental. That is our own existence awareness, such it. So, uh, because uh, Western philosophy has never had, has never, has never recognized this fundamental distinction between subject and object, they are looking for consciousness among the objects. They're trying to find where in the brain is consciousness. How does consciousness emerge from the brain? Obviously, the brain isn't a phenomena. Phenomena all emerge from consciousness, or they emerge not even from consciousness, they emerge within consciousness and they subside back into consciousness. We can see this from our own experience. We, what is consciousness? Consciousness is not an object. We ourselves are consciousness. We ourselves are awareness. We, in order to be aware of anything, you need to be aware. But in order to be aware, you don't need to be aware of anything as we can see from our own experience. Because in waking and dream, we are aware, and we are aware of so many other things. In sleep, we are aware without being aware of any other things. So the awareness that Bhagavan is talking about is not just the superficial awareness of think, other things, it is the fundamental awareness from which... So, Awareness in the sense of mind, the awareness that knows other things, Bhagavan would agree, yes, it's an emergent phenomena. It emerges from the fundamental awareness in the form of ego, and it merges back in that. So it, is, it does emerge, but not from, not from material, not from objects. It, it, it emerges from the real consciousness, the fundamental consciousness, the pure consciousness, I am. So if we if we if we understand Bhagavan's teachings carefully, we will see that they we will if we consider it carefully and think deeply about it, why Bhagavan is teaching this. Bhagavan doesn't ask us to believe something. Um but, but Bhagavan often used to say, do not believe what you do not know. 
So Bhagavan bases, Bhagavan convinces us that this is the case by pointing out an, an, uh, a simple logical analysis of our own experience. So if, I mean, we, uh, if we understand Bhagavan clearly, there's absolutely no ground at all for, um, for um, a materialism. And imagining that consciousness is a property that emerges from material things, that's, a, that's imagining that the subject is emerging from the objects. But the objects exist only in the view of the subject. So they are putting the cart before the horse because they are looking outwards instead of looking within. So we, the, 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 object, the objects cannot be more real than the subject because they appear only in the view of the subject. We are investigating, so we cannot find the reality outside in objects. We can only find the reality within ourselves. What is the reality? This, this subject, namely ego, is unreal because it appears and disappears. What is the, what is, from what does it appear and into what does it disappear? That is our fundamental uh, existence awareness, such it. That is what is real. If we, if we I have absolutely no our, doubt about. Yeah, I have it, absolutely no doubt about the teachings of Bhagwan. Yeah. I mean, I'm following this part already for years, and you know, there is no doubt in my why. And this also that's why I said, from logic and experiment, uh, experiential uh, experience. You know, I mean, I I I subscribe completely to the the Sankhya or the, the the Indian philosophy instead of the Western philosophy. Yeah, but um, I I just hope that you can a little bit understand my doubt because I of course come from have a Western background. Yes, and I've always been learned that matter is fundamental and everything else, even the subtle things, arise from matter. Yes, yes. So that, I have to make a one hundred eighty degree turn. Yes, you know that, yes. and. For me, that is, I mean, that consciousness or self is fundamental, is just as strong as an assumption as matter is uh, um, uh, fundamental is, for, for you. What is your primary experience? Before you can oh, be oh, aware, oh. I am this body, you must be aware. Yeah. So awareness uh, is more, has to be more fundamental than awareness of material things. But my point is that if, and I, I, then I will, you know, if consciousness is an emergent property, I could give you the same answer. I could also conclude investigating that consciousness which has emerged and say, I'm now an, an unconscious being, arise from matter, I'm now questioning my existence, and then I could still say, I see the world only appearing in my consciousness, so therefore consciousness is fundamental. So I could be deluded and in delusion by thinking that consciousness is fundamental, while it actually has arisen and is an emergent property for matter. But how I agree can, with you, my first experience is... anything more fundamental than consciousness? Because the very assumption that the world exists, we assume the world exists only because it appears in consciousness. So our own Absolutely. experience is that consciousness is fundamental. If we, if we but cannot, but do you do you think, do you think it it matters even? 
it does if matter. I, it does matter. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Therefore, I'm making this point. Yeah. You know, because either matter is fundamental or consciousness is fundamental. And it's if, not either if, or. If, yeah, that is, matter cannot be more fundamental than consciousness because matter appears only in the view of consciousness. Yes, something that but, is conscious. Uh, many, many people would uh, disagree with you and say that consciousness can only arise from matter because matter is fundamental. So this is a a clash of philosophies. Yes, because they haven't. Know. They haven't. As I say, they've got outward-looking minds. If if you look, yeah. if we begin to look within, it becomes very, very clear. But matter, material things are merely an appearance. They appear and, and that they is disappear what, in consciousness. Yes, actually, and not science even in pure says consciousness, that, only in the mind. And the mind appears yeah. and disappears in the pure consciousness that we actually are. Even science itself is saying that actually there is nothing out there. You know that science yeah. is now starting to. You know well, the, yeah. all these parts are converging. You know, when, they, it, when it comes science, to metaphysics, particularly yeah. when it comes to quantum mechanics and uh, yeah. the, the science of consciousness, there's absolutely there's so many different views among the scientists. They cannot decide for themselves, but we have to decide for ourselves in our experience what is fundamental. There cannot so, be experience without consciousness. So in our experience, consciousness is fundamental. So to suppose that there's anything more fundamental than consciousness, there's absolutely nothing in our experience and could be nothing in our experience to suggest that that is true. So why should we assume something but for which there's absolutely no evidence and never could be any evidence? Oh, that's a good question because if you have pure... If if experience is the leading instead of the mind, yeah, which, which it of course is, yeah, if it, then of course the teachings yes. are indisputable. There is no doubt. Yes, yes, and all science is based on experience. Without experience, exactly. there'd be no science. It's empirical exactly. science. Empirical means experience. Thank you, Michael. <laughs> it was lovely talking to you. Okay, Michael, okay. our time is about half over. Can we get uh, on? Yeah, yeah. Another 11 questions to go. Yeah. Arnold, thank you very much. Uh, a good battle there. And I think a lot of people can relate to your fundamental question having to do with doubt. And I think it resides in a lot of us Westerners for a long time, even if we've been on this path. But the, path, the doubt begins to diminish in scope and size, which I'm very grateful for. This next question, Michael, is from, I don't know how to pronounce your name, but I want to say, Pariyat, uh, when Bhagavan said, when Bhagavan says, what does it matter, however many thoughts arise? To whom are these thoughts? Hold on to self-attention. What does he really mean? It seems as if the main purpose of self-inquiry is to hold on to the self rather than being bothered about thoughts. But how is it possible to hold on to the self when there are thoughts, if thoughts are not a problem, and at the same time as they arise, one is to inquire to whom are these thoughts appearing, it does not seem, it does seem to imply that thoughts are a problem as they take the attention away from self. On the other hand, I do understand that having no thoughts doesn't imply that self-attention is held. 
She concludes by saying and asking, if self-attention is our goal and not removal of thought, it seems that that goal can only be achieved by removal of thought. How does one go about achieving that? And finally, is it possible to continue having thoughts and at the very same time, holding on to self-attention? Okay, a very good question. Um, uh, uh, in this, in, I'll just take one, one, one part of this. If self-attention is our goal and not removal of thought, it seems that goal can be achieved only by removal of thought. There, it is putting the cart before the horse. If we simply remove, as, as Harriet recognizes, merely being without thought is not self-attention. Every night when we fall asleep, we cease thinking. But we are thereby not, we, we don't thereby attend to ourselves. When we fall asleep, we are too tired to continue attending to thoughts. So we cease attending to thoughts, the thoughts subside, and the mind subsides with it. Um, because there's no mind other than thoughts. Um, but self-attention doesn't result. So removal of thought is not the means. It, it, you cannot achieve self-attention by removal of thoughts. But by self-attention, you will achieve removal of thought because thought cannot arise unless we attend. Thoughts cannot arise unless we attend to them. That is, where do thoughts arise? They arise only in our own view, in our own awareness. So if we, instead of attending to the thoughts, if we attend to ourselves the thought will automatically subside because there's no one to attend to it. How can a thought stand if no one's aware of it? Thoughts are just um, are just uh, um, impressions that arise in the mind, arise and subside in the mind. If instead of attending to, to the thoughts, if we're attending only to ourselves, there'll be no room for the thoughts to rise. So when Bhagavan says, however many thoughts rise, so what? What he means is, we, when we are investigating ourselves, we should not be concerned about thoughts. We should be concerned only with attending to ourselves. If we attend to ourselves, then thoughts will automatically cease because there's no one to attend to them. They can, thoughts can go on only so long as we're attending to them. So rather than trying to stop thoughts or cease thinking, if we turn our attention back to ourselves, the cessation of thoughts will happen automatically. Is that clear? Uh, that is what Bhagavan means. That's why he, that's what you ask, what does he really mean? This is what he really means. If you attend to yourself, you give no room for thoughts to arise because thoughts can arise only if you attend to them. Harriet's not here. Uh, okay. Then the other question she asked is whether it's possible to attend to ourselves. Um, is it possible to continue having thoughts and at the same time holding on to self-attention? Whether we are having thoughts or not, as Bhagavan says, what does it matter? So what? Enna means what, but it's used in the same sense as in English we'd say, so what? So we are not to be concerned about thoughts at all. If we attend to ourselves, 
to the extent to which we attend to ourselves, to that extent other thoughts will subside. But at present, because we lack sufficient love to attend to ourselves keenly enough, our self-attention is only partial self-attention. So even while we're attending to ourselves, we are st- we continue to be aware of other things to some, to a greater or lesser extent. That means our attention is divided between ourself and other things. So we are only partially attending to ourselves. So yes, we in even in the midst of thoughts and activities and so on, we can attend to ourselves at least partially. No matter what the mind, speech, and body may be doing, we can be holding on to self-attentiveness, at least to some extent. But the more keenly we attend to ourselves, that means the deeper we go in this practice of self-attentiveness, the more we thereby withdraw, because our attention is being focused on ourselves, it's thereby withdrawn from other things. So to the extent to which we attend to ourselves, Thoughts and all other phenomena and all phenomena will uh, will withdraw into the background of our awareness. And when we attend to ourselves keenly enough, when we attend to ourselves so keenly, but we are aware only of ourselves, everything else will will be removed from our awareness, and we will then experience ourselves as pure awareness. That is our aim. By by attending to ourselves more and more, we we the, the awareness of other things uh, withdraws or drops off until when we attend to ourselves wholly, when we, when metaphorically speaking, when we turn our attention 180 degrees back towards ourselves and therefore away from everything else, we rem- we become aware of ourselves without any awareness of anything else whatsoever. That state in which we're aware of nothing other than ourselves is the state of pure awareness. So when we as ego, it is, it's only as ego that we're doing the self-investigation. So when we as ego attend to ourselves so keenly, but we cease to be aware of anything else, we thereby become aware of ourselves as pure awareness. But as soon as we become aware of ourselves as pure awareness, we thereby cease to be ego. Because ego is not pure awareness. Ego is pure awareness mixed and conflated with adjunct. So it's an impure awareness. So when, as soon as we as ego experience ourselves as pure awareness, we cease to be ego and remain as pure awareness. This is how the uh, annihilation of ego is achieved by this practice of self-attentiveness. So the, we shouldn't think, oh, so long as I'm aware of anything else, so long as I'm aware of thoughts or um, uh, whether the uh, it's hot or cold or whether the wind is blowing or um, whether the lights are on or whether my eyes are open or closed or so long as we we shouldn't think oh so long as i'm aware of anything else i can't attend to myself no even when we're aware of all these other things we're always aware i am so the self-investigation it is turning our attention more and more away from other things back towards this fundamental awareness i am so even in the midst of other thoughts and activities, we can be attending to ourselves. But the, to the extent to which we attend to ourselves, to that extent, our attention is withdrawn from other things and they thereby recede into the background and eventually disappear entirely. I, I hope that's a clear and adequate answer to that question.
this I'm sure we'll hear from her because she was going to be watching it when it's when you post this in about right. a week and a half and I'll hear back from her and pass it along to you. The next question is from Gotham, and he has two questions. Would you like it one at a time or both? One, one at a time would be good, yes, because they're two separate questions. So the question is, does ego, does ego have to be convinced that its true identity is self instead of the body-mind unit, or is it not necessary? That is, in order to investigate ourselves, we need to understand what we are and what we are not. If we do not understand that we are not this body or mind, when we are asked to investigate ourselves, we'll be investigating this body or mind. That is not investigating ourselves. So we need to have an understanding, a conviction, that what we actually are is not any object, body and mind, mind in the sense of the other thoughts, are all objects. We need to distinguish between ourselves as the subject and all other things which are objects. The objects appear to the subject. So we need to turn our attention away from the objects, away from mind, body, world, everything else, back towards ourselves to see who am I. So it is necessary to distinguish ourselves as the subject from all other things which are objects. But the subject is not our real identity. The subject is what we seem to be so long as we're knowing other things. However, though the subject is not our, the subject is ego. Ego is the adjunct conflated awareness, I am this body. In that adjunct conflated awareness, the real element is the fundamental awareness I am. So when we are investigating ourselves, we are not investigating the adjuncts, namely this body and all the other things that we take ourselves to be. We are investigating only I, only ourselves. So we need to recognize that what we actually are, we, we are certainly not any object. We are not even the subject. We are the reality underlying the subject. But it's sufficient if we turn our attention back towards ourselves as the subject, because the, the relationship between ourselves as the subject, in other words, ego, and our real nature is like the relationship between the rope and the, the, the snake and the rope. The, what actually exists there is only a rope. But so long as we see it as a snake, we don't see it as a rope. But in order to remove our fear of the snake, we need to see what it actually is. If we look at it very carefully, we will see, oh, it's not a snake, it's, it's only a rope. But what is it we are looking at? When we start our investigation, are we looking at the snake or are we looking at the rope? We, we we can we can say you're looking at the snake or you can say you're looking at the rope because they're one they're not two things there there's not a snake and a rope there's only one thing what it actually is is a snake it appears to be a rope sorry what it actually is is a rope it appears to be a snake so so long as it seems to you to be a snake look at that snake very carefully if you look at the snake carefully enough, you'll see, oh, it's not a snake, it's only a rope. Likewise with 
our real nature and ego. So long as we seem to be ego, we should attend to this ego. If we attend to ego keenly enough, we will see that what we actually are is not ego, but only pure awareness. But we can see that only by looking at ourselves. And since we now seem to be ego, it will seem to us that we're looking at ego. But actually, if we look at ego, there's no such thing as ego to be found. Just like if you look at the snake carefully enough, there's no snake there to be found. So I'll go on to the second question, Michael. Is that okay? Yes. Yep. Fine. And uh, Gotham, I'm seeing here sitting in the red shirt. So welcome. Gross mind, he says, gross mind gets frustrated in accessing self as it's constantly looking for an object called awareness. What is subtle mind and what is the role in knowledge of self-inquiry? What's an easy way to access subtle mind, the subtle mind, Michael? Okay. The mind seem the mind is one. There are not two minds, there are a gross mind and a subtle mind. There's only one mind. That mind appears to be gross so long as it is looking outwards. The more it looks back within, the more subtle it becomes until finally it dissolves back into its source. So so long as you're looking outwards, the mind is gross. So the gross mind means the outward-looking mind. The outward-looking mind can never investigate itself. In order to investigate itself, it needs to be subtle. It needs to, but how to become subtle? Simply by turning our attention back within. To the extent to which our attention is turned within, the mind thereby becomes subtle. Not only does it become subtle, it subsides. And when it subsides and becomes subtle enough, it will dissolve back into its source. So, you, when you say uh, get frustrated in accessing self with in capital letters, as it constantly looks for an object called awareness with a capital A, we are not looking for any object. The, the self we are looking for is only ourself. It's not some other thing. It is simply we are investigating ourself. Who am I? So I is obviously not an object. So we are turning our attention away from all objects back to ourself as a subject. In other words, we, what we're actually attending to is just our own being, I am. That is not an object. So that is why someone asked earlier whether it's... Um, oh, yes, you, you, in your previous question, you asked whether ego has to be convinced that its true identity is self. That is, we don't have to be convinced, but... But I am this or I am that. We need to understand we are not this body. We are just the fundamental awareness I am. If we understand that, then we need to investigate that fundamental awareness I am. So we do need to be able to, we do need to have an understanding and conviction of the distinction between ourselves as the subject and all other things which are objects. And then we need to investigate the subject by attending to our own being. In other words, we're investigating not just the subject, we're investigating the reality underlying subject, which is our own being. So the easy way to access subtle mind is to turn your mind inwards. It's not only the easy way, it's the only way. And it is indeed easy. The, the reason it may seem to us to be difficult, in fact, I think most of us will agree, it seems very difficult, 
though it's actually very easy. The reason it seems difficult is because we are we don't actually want to attend to ourselves. Because attending to ourselves means giving up everything. As Bhagavan says in verse 26 of Uludunapadu, if ego comes into existence, everything comes into existence. If ego doesn't exist, everything doesn't exist. Ego itself is everything. Therefore, investigating what this ego is, is giving up everything. Why is it investigating what this ego is, giving up everything? Because investigating what this ego is brings about the subsidence of ego. When ego when ego subsides, everything else subsides along with it because everything else exists only in the view of ego. So we need to be willing to surrender everything, to give up everything. We because we are not yet willing to surrender to surrender ourselves completely, to give up everything, it seems to us to be difficult to turn within. It is not actually difficult. It, it it seems difficult because of our reluctance to do so. I sometimes illustrate this with a simple analogy. Supposing you have a, a very sharp knife and a watermelon. With the sharp knife, you can very easily cut the watermelon. Though the watermelon actually has a, a, hard, a hard shell, a hard exterior, because the knife is sharp, you can very easily cut the watermelon. The watermelon has a hard exterior. Your throat doesn't have a hard exterior. So if it's easy to cut the watermelon with that knife, it should equally be it should be equally easy to cut your throat with a knife. In in theory, cutting your your throat with a knife is very, very easy. But are any of us able to do it? No, we're not. Because we are not willing to do it, because we know that cutting our throat means giving up every, giving up the whole of our identity as this person and all that we hold dear in this life, because we're not ready to to give up this identity. Not, not, we're not even ready to give up this temporary identity, let alone the ego, which is that which identifies it. So we're not willing to cut our throat. So cutting our throat, though, however sharp a knife may be, it seems very difficult to cut our throat, even though it's actually very easy, in exactly the same way with self-investigation. Turning our mind inwards to attend to ourself is extremely easy. It seems difficult because we are not willing to let go of other things. That's why you end up um, confusing yourself and looking for some of object called awareness, as if there was such an object, because you're not willing to see, look at yourself. So you look for something else, imagining that's awareness. There's no awareness other than yourself. You yourself are awareness. If you want to attend to what is aware, you need to attend to yourself. So go to my, I hope that answers your two questions adequately. But if you have any other question you'd like to ask, no, I just want to wish you happy Guru Purnima. Okay, yes, yes. Happy Guru Purnima to everyone. I think that's tomorrow, if I'm correct. No, that's already started. It's already started, okay, yes. This is tonight. Tonight, okay. Thank you very much, okay. uh, and welcome to the group. McNair, who's uh, been... For those who don't know, Purnima means full moon. So oh, the no. full moon in between the middle of, um, middle of June and the middle of July is called Guru Purnima. It is, uh, it is that particular day is sacred to Guru. Yeah, which Guru would be my question. <laughs> I have several of them. 
There are no several gurus. Guru is one. How about guru being self? Bhagavan says in Nana, in the 12th paragraph, in truth, God, God and guru are in truth not different. So yeah. if you say there are many gurus, then you're saying there are many gods. Yeah. And as you say, Bhagavan also said, often said, God, guru and Atman are one. Atman in that context means Atmasarupa, our own real nature. So our own real nature is one without a second. So Guru is one without a second. The names and forms in which Guru appears may be many, but Guru is one. And Guru is not the name and form that he seems to us to be. Because we take ourselves to be a body, we take some other body to be Guru. We say, oh, Bhagavan is, this body is Bhagavan. But that body is not Bhagavan. What Bhagavan actually is, that body appeared to tell us but, but not only the Bhagavan is not the body, but, but we are not the body, but we need to look within to see what we actually are. Where you find When self. we see what we actually... The, the, the real Guru can be found only in our own heart as our own being, I am. Thank you for that reinforcement. And that is only one. So Guru can never be many. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, Michael. Uh, McNair is next, and... Uh... It's a question I think a lot of people relate to. I know I certainly do. I've got all of a sudden six people in my life who are in various stages of leaving their earthly body. And his question is about that subject as it pertains to grief. Questions about grief. And McNair says, myself and my wife are going through a period of grieving at this time, both for the loss of family members, as well as for our beloved pet that is dying. I've read what Ramana Maharshi says about suffering and grief. Uh, basically, as long as there is the ego, the identification with the body, there will be suffering and grief. At least this is how I understand it, is his question. That's only the first paragraph. He goes on, there's more to it. Oh, could you please, thank you. <laughs> Could you please share your thoughts about whether the practice of Atma Vachara can have an ameliorative uh, effect on the process of grief at the time one is grieving? Or will the positive effects only come in the long run when one has totally eradicated the ego? And one more paragraph. Oh, there's much here. I'm sorry. I apologize. <laughs> Ages are mixed up. I'm not even sure he goes on to say my question makes sense, but basically, is Atma Bachara or Advaita Vedanta useful for dealing with grief in the short term? Your thoughts and suggestions are appreciated. Uh, the short answer is yes, they certainly are useful. Um, what you say in the first paragraph. Um, you say, at least this is how I understand it. Yes, what you say is correct. Except you say, as long as there is the ego and identification with the body. You probably understand this already, but the identification with the body is itself ego. And ego itself is that But that is the very nature of ego is to always identify a body as I. 
In other words, as Bhagavan often used to say, ego is the false awareness, I am this body. So long as we experience ourselves as a body, suffering and grief are inevitable. They cannot be avoided. The remedy for this false awareness, I am this body, is Atma-Vichara. So Atma-Vichara has a beneficial effect to the extent to which we practice it. Of course, the ultimate aim of Atma-Vichara is to totally eradicate ego. That is the final goal. But we don't have to wait till the final goal is achieved to, uh, to, to experience the benefits of Atma-Vichara. Even, even while practicing Atma-Vichara, we are benefited. Because we need to remember, Atma-Vichara means self-investigation. We cannot investigate ourselves without thereby surrendering ourselves. So the more we attend to ourselves, the more we subside. The more we subside, the more our grief and anguish and pain will, and suffering will subside along with us. So Abhimavichara certainly, it, it, it is the best way of dealing with grief. That doesn't mean we won't grieve. We, that is, grief is, until, we, until our ego is annihilated, suffering and grief are inevitable. But they they are reduced to the extent to which we are self-attentive. Because to the extent we are self-attentive, we thereby subside, we thereby let go of other things, and thereby we, we, we are, we, though the suffering and grief will still be there, we, so to speak, separate ourselves from them. Not completely, there's still the identification. We, we still feel, I, I am suffering, I am in grief. But we... By to the extent to which we are self-attentive, to that extent we put a, a distance between ourselves and the grief that we are suffering. Does that make you ask whether your question makes sense? Does my answer make sense, McNair? Yes, yes. Thank you, Michael. I appreciate it. It's, I think I just needed some reinforcement. Yes, yes. <laughs> that is Atmavichara. If if we if we are not experiencing the benefits of atma vichara, we are not to, we are not practicing atma vichara. To the extent to which we attend to ourselves, we thereby separate ourselves from other things. So we are we are renouncing, not outwardly. We don't have Bhagavan never. Bhagavan was at least concerned about external renunciation. The renunciation Bhagavan taught is the renunci is the inward renunciation. In other words, the separation of ourselves from this false identity, I am this person, I am this body. And Thank to the extent to which we separate ourselves from this body, we recognize, since we recognize that, though we don't, we don't recognize it yet with the full clarity, the more we go within, the more we recognize that we are something distinct from this body. To the extent to which we recognize that we are distinct from this body, we will also recognize that those who are dear to us are also distinct from the body. So we will recognize it'll be easier for us to um to uh to um cope with bereavement because we will recognize that what has died is the body, 
but we took to be that person. But that, what that, the, the one we loved is not this body. That that was just like the 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 shirt they were wearing. Now they've removed the shirt, but the the the, the essence of that person we loved is ever present because that person is nothing other, is is not something other than ourselves. So if we want to, some people after they are bereaved, they want to contact um, their uh, departed uh, the departed souls they're, they're, they're those who have uh, departed and they may go to um what do they call these um um like people who contact spirits yeah. but we don't have to go to venue if we want to contact those who have left us we can contact them in our own heart because ultimately they are not other than our own being so if we want to find consolation when we are bereaved, the best consolation is to take refuge in our own heart, which is the source from which everything else appears and into which everything else disappears. That is the only true refuge. That is the only true place of, of solace. That's beautiful. Thank you. I think we could afford to hear this message about once a year or once every six months. Yeah. <laughs> like every day. <laughs> but as we get older, it becomes more and more necessary because more and more of those who are dear to us are, uh, are, are leaving us. And one day we are also going to go. So we, we have to start grieving about our own loss. <laughs> um, I want to ask a technical question about how the program is conducted, Michael. Uh, we have some excellent questions yet to go, and I do want to get to the next one. Brian's first question about surrender. It's a topic we talk about in the group that meets on Sundays when you're not here. But you decide if you want to then go to asking for questions. From I, I, I agree with you. I suggest we deal at least with the first question asked by uh, Brian. Yeah. Um, and then, and, we'll... and then, then open it up for other questions. <laughs> Right. We're 90 minutes into the program and we'll yes. get to Brian's question. Surrender is a big uh, element in, in Ramana's teachings. As it's, at, it's not a big element. It's what his teachings are all about. That is self-investigation. How can we surrender ourselves except by investigating ourselves? So now, I was raised with that concept, being a Christian and trying to follow some Buddhist traditions and trying to understand from Sai Baba what surrender means to really unburden myself of the need to worry when you can just turn it over and then do your duty after that. Brian puts it this way, which I find very interesting and also I'm very familiar with it. He says, I have a very busy and dynamic job. Uh, and many of us can be in that position, whether we think we're raising a family or, or have outside distractions that take us away from going inward. I often think of walking away and living a more contemplative life, but I've been in Bhagavan's teachings long enough not to romanticize those thoughts for too long. The question is about the mechanics, the mechanics of surrender. I currently have the practice of that in a journal form, daily writing to Bhagavan, and humbly giving him whatever is weighing me down at the moment. So that's everyday surrender, which I, I haven't thought of before, speaking for myself. An example would be, he says, Brian says, Beloved Bhagavan, I humbly lay at your feet whatever the specific thing that is stressing me out at the time is, parenthetically, may your will prevail and may this body 
merely be your instrument. Now, last point. This seems to ease my mind, and so I can be free enough to practice self-investigation while these things are happening at the same time. Is this a good practice, Michael, or would you have other recommendations for surrender in dynamic, daily, universal life situations? Um, <clears throat> this type of attitude is is what is required to be in a, a a surrendering frame of mind and if if it helps you writing in a journal well and good i mean whatever helps is, is there's, there's no right and wrong in these things but merely writing in the journal is not the surrender it's the attitude of mind even the attitude of mind is only the beginning of surrender the real surrender is subsiding back within. We can subside back within only to the extent to which we hold on to self-attentiveness. That is, in verse 25 of Uludunapadu, Bhagavan has revealed to us the nature of ego. In that verse, in the last line, he describes ego as a, a formless um, uh, pay. Pay means a demon, an evil spirit, a phantom something that, um, that will possess other, other, will possess a body. That's why he uses that term. So it's a, it's a demonic phantom that has possessed this body. But it itself is formless. So um, it, it, it is formless because it has no form of its own. It is a phantom or a spirit because it's got no substance of its own. Its substance, that is its existence and its awareness, it borrows from Satchit in the form of I, the uh, uh, fundamental awareness I am. And its form, it borrows from a body. So it's aware of itself as I am this body. The I am portion of ego is borrowed from Satchit. The form, the, the form of this body, the form of ego, that is the body, is borrowed from the body. So, but ego is neither Satchit nor is it the body. It's a, it's a, some spurious entity that rises between the two. And then, but it, that's so. In the last line, he describes it as that. But how he begins the verse is by saying, and this is talking about ego. Um, Grasping form, it comes into existence. Grasping form, it stands. Grasping and feeding on form, it flourishes abundantly. Leaving form, it grasps form. From this, it is clear that the very nature of ego is to grasp form. Whatever, Since ego is formless, whatever forms it grasps are things other than itself. So what Bhagavan means by form is objects or phenomena. The first object um, we as ego grasp, as soon as we rise as ego, is we grasp the form of a body as ourself. And we continue grasping the form of a body as ourself, thus we endure. So what he means in the first two clauses when he says, grasping form, it comes into existence, grasping form, it stands, is that as soon as we rise as ego, we grasp the form of a body as ourself, and we continue grasping that form, so long as it, it's only by, by continuing to grasp that form that we as ego stand or endure. And then he goes on to say, Grasping and feeding on form, it flourishes abundantly. 
That is, having grasped this form of this body as ourself, we are constantly grasping on other forms. Uh, that is, uh, perceptions, memories, thoughts, feelings, emotions, likes, dislikes. We're constantly clinging to things other than ourselves. How do we, since we are a formless phantom, how do we grasp forms? What Bhagavan means by grasp is we grasp in our awareness. In other words, we attend to and are aware of those things. By attending to anything other than ourselves, we are thereby feeding and nourishing ourselves. That is why he then says, after saying, leaving form at grasp form, that's just to emphasize that ego cannot stand for a moment without grasping form. But he then says, Tedinal Otompidicum. Tedinal literally means if, share, if, if searching, if seeking. There's neither subject nor object there, but it's understood. If ego seeks its own, it seeks its own reality, is, is what is implied. It, uh, autumn pidicum, it takes flight. It, in other words, it runs away. Why? Because we seem to be ego only so long as we're grasping other things. If we try to grasp ourselves, there's no such thing as ego to be found. So to the extent to which we attend to things other than ourselves, we as ego rise and flourish and grow big and fat and strong. Um, to the extent to which we turn our attention back within to investigate ourselves, we thereby subside. So how are we to surrender ourselves? So long as we attend to anything other than ourselves, we are feeding ourselves. That's not surrendering ourselves. In order to surrender ourselves, we need to turn our attention back within. Then only will ego subside. So we cannot invest, we cannot surrender ourselves without investigating ourselves. We, we, that doesn't mean that surrender begins with self-investigation, because before we come to this path of self-investigation, we can start by surrendering our will to Bhagavan. We can start giving up. Our, our likes and dislikes, not my will, your will. May your will prevail, as you say. So what you're writing in the book, that is all very good for surrendering our will. But we can surrender our will only to a certain extent without surrendering ourselves. In order to surrender our will fully, we need to surrender ourselves because the very nature of ego is to have a will of its own. So in order to surrender our will completely, we need to surrender ourselves. That's why Bhagavan called it self-surrender, Atma Samapanam. Atma there means not our self as we actually are. Obviously, we cannot surrender our what we actually are. We can only surrender what we now seem to be, namely ego. So the the, the Atma in Atma Samapanam is ego. So we are surrendering ego. How can we surrender ego? Only by self-investigation. So in order, though the path of surrender begins on the bhakti marga, even when we're still taking God to be something other than ourselves, we can be, that, that is, devotees are beginning on the path of surrender. But in order for the surrender to become complete, we need to surrender not only our will, not only all our possessions, and give everything, we need to give ourselves to God. And the only way to give ourselves, that means this ego, to God, is to investigate ourselves. So the, 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 when you ask about the mechanics of surrender, surrender begins with the attitude. 
not my will, your will. As Bhagavan has expressed it beautifully in the second verse of Arunacha Patikam, where he says, Ninishtam enishtam, your will is my will. That means I have no will of my own. Whatever you want for me, that is what I want. I don't want anything else. Ninishtam uh, enishtam, your will is my will. Imbadaku, that means that is happiness for me. So whatever you, if it's your will to put me in hell, I'm perfectly happy in hell because that is your will. Such should be the attitude of surrender we have. That attitude is very, very important. If we don't have that attitude, we will not be able to go very deep in this path of self-investigation. So having that attitude, that is the, the foundation of surrender. But the, actually to go deep in the surrender, we need to turn our attention back within. Brian, is that a, a sufficiently clear answer to your question? Yes, Michael. Thank you very much. But I'm not sure I'm perfectly happy being put in hell for a while. <laughs> then you're not, none of us will be because we're not surrendered. But if you want to be happy in hell, there's only one way to surrender. And if we recognize the truth, even this life is hell. <laughs> Intellectually, I'm there. I could be in hell and be fine. Uh, yeah. With, with the, with the yeah. In practice, it would be a bit difficult, but being in hell would be a very good opportunity to surrender ourselves. When our life is nice and cozy, um, our surrender is, is, uh, is very superficial. If you really want to surrender yourself, you should pray to Bhagavan, put me in hell so that I can surrender myself to you. Let's not get greedy now. Uh, <laughs> I think you're helping. I'm, I'm, I'm supposing you might be helping people like uh, McNair and others who are grieving right now. That's akin to being in hell. It is. You're... It is. But we we experience. We don't have to wait till till the afterlife to experience the fruit of our past sins. We're experiencing the fruit of them day in day out. There's so many forms of suffering in this life. I want to point out real quickly, too, we're getting some uh, interesting questions coming. I got one here I'm copying down from Arshita. Uh, rather than get to it today, I'd like to get to somebody here live, but I'm going to keep those questions for a future program. And I want to also just say my apologies to Anvesh, Melissa, Rati, and Leah. All these questions will be asked of uh, who knows when, but hopefully month after month, we'll <laughs> get to all questions that haven't been already answered, Michael. Is that all right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So somebody who's got a question. Sorry, when, when, when I select each time, when I select which questions to start with, I generally select those that, are, that seem to me most relevant to the core of Bhagavan's teaching, particularly to the core, to the practice of self-investigation and self-surrender. A quick question. Does that mean some questions will not be chosen by you? I don't say they they're all on the list, but they're they um yeah. the, the closer they if you want to ask a question that is more likely to be uh get priority, the closer oh. it is to the subject of self-investigation and self-surrender, the more likely it is to be given priority. Perfect way of answering. The, the, the first question I answered today, Arnold's question, though that was not directly connected with uh, self-investigation and self-surrender, that is about the, um, the 
understanding that underpin that underpins this um this uh, practice of self investigation and self surrender. That's why I took up that because that's a very important thing. But we we should not be um we we should have such a clear grasp of Bhagavan's teachings, but we but we will not be swayed by um other views such as the materialist view that consciousness is an emergent property. We need we need to we we need to be so well rooted. We need to have such a clear understanding of Bhagavan's teaching that we are able to see for ourselves but such um but such ideas are wrong. But otherwise there are so many ideas in the world. That is that that is not that is just one among numerous options for for exper- explaining about consciousness, about the appearance of multiplicity, and all these things. So, but we need to understand why Bhagavan has taught us what he has taught us. What he has taught us is what is. If we understand what he's taught us, that will give us the strongest motivation for turning within and investigating ourselves. And I'm glad that you likened his word materialist, which you use several times to the word you also said, which is dualist, which I I have a personal preference for because it's easier for me to visualize uh, people, things and thoughts uh, and feelings that yeah. fall under that heading of dualistic. So we we, uh, we are all nat we are all naturally as ego we are naturally dualists because we experience ourselves as a subject and we experience other things. Even talking here, we see that. Yes, yes, yes. But yeah. though we experience dualism, that doesn't mean dualism is real. Dualism is an appearance. What is real is one only without a second. Yeah. So it sort of seems to be the taxi that takes us towards. But in order to experience that one that is one only without a second, we need to go beyond not only object, we also need to go beyond the subject. And we can go beyond the subject only by going within. Very good. We have 17 minutes left. The first, we're going to do this an easy way. The first person who speaks up gets to ask the question of Michael and who's speaking up first? Nobody. <laughs> I'm sure there's a question lurking out there. Andes. I have a question. Uh, yes, go ahead. I think it was uh, for me. Is that you talking, Anvesh? Or yes, uh, yeah. Can, yeah. can you hear me? Yes, yes we can hear. You. Go ahead. Yes. Uh, so uh, the question is about doubt. Uh, the the issue is. I think going into Advaita Vedanta from a materialist or scientific background, which is mine, it becomes uh, it becomes quite. Um, I mean, first of all, it is a process to understand the philosophy and then to apply it. The doubt is that the only there's no proof, there's no experimental evidence that will tell you that these uh, these philosophies are true. I mean, though I I totally buy and and believe them myself. I, I'm just. Similar the to only, Arnold, where the, uh, the only evidence we have ultimately for anything is the evidence of our own experience, but we shouldn't take our experience at face value. What we experience, just because we experience something, doesn't mean that it's real. But in order to experience something, we must be that is the 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 the. 
I'm not saying that the subject is real, that, that the subject means the experiencer, but there must be an element of reality in the experiencer in order for experience to take place. So, and in that, all, all experience is based upon without awareness, there would be no experience. Without awareness, there would be no science, there would be no history, no geography, no, um, there'd be nothing. So, it's so, uh, um, it, uh, uh, the only evidence we have for anything, we, our experience just tells us things are as they appear to be. That that is that things are that things appear. That's all they, our experience tells us. It doesn't. Our experience cannot tell us that things are actually as they appear to be. They, they can only tell us how things appear to be. So in science, you're studying appearance. Whatever we experience is is what appears to be the case. So we can't say that anything that we experience is real except ourselves, because if we didn't exist, if we were not aware, we could not experience anything. So the one thing that we can be sure of is our own existence and awareness. Everything else, all we can say about it is, it seems to be, not that it is. So the only and thing it, that, actually, that we can say actually exists is ourself as awareness. And in that sense, I mean, if there is some evidence, is it is could it be that we are improving? I mean, there is something as we practice, we feel that a lot of things are seeming to be less problematic, and we are more at peace. Exactly. And, exactly. Uh, exactly. So, it, it, and and that, I mean, and that's where I mean, actually, I might as well since you're discussing it, the the question that I had asked in the email was that if we are trying to do some sort of viragya uh, and some, uh, you know, is it that, you know, coming from like, I, I'm from, I, I, I am in a, a psychological background in terms of uh, the kind of work I do, is that to get away from, and this relates to the previous question, is that if you're trying to escape from grief, from the, the problems of the world, could it be that you seek a refuge in this, but you're not sincerely, practicing it to the point of getting to enlightenment. You're just trying to find a way to, you know, make these, these problems in the world less. And then you, you accept that and feel that's enough. And you don't go the whole way. I feel I'm doing some of that. I feel I'm guilty right. of that. Yeah. And what to do about this problem. Okay. The, um, it is natural. We are all trying to avoid grief and suffering and everything. We are all looking for refuge from all these things. Most people look for refuge outside themselves in, um, in having a successful career, in earning a lot of money, in having a happy family life, in um, being successful in the career, in acquiring lots of knowledge, acquiring lots of money, acquiring name and fame, acquiring um, social status, political power, whatever it is, all, all this is escapism. Because everyone is trying to escape from the harsh realities of life. But all these type of escapism is, you, it, is even if it seems to give us some temporary alleviation, it's not going to save us from death. 
So that is escapism. If we are serious about finding a problem for our solution, uh, sorry, finding, <laughs> finding a solution for our problem, sorry. Um, if, if we are serious about that, we must be willing to pay the price for it. If we see, truly seek refuge from all suffering, the only place where we can find refuge is in the depth of our own heart. But in order to sink into the depth of our own heart, we need to be willing to surrender ourselves completely. And surrendering ourselves completely entails giving up everything else, because everything else comes appears only in the view of ourselves with this ego. So are we ready to pay the price? The truth is, none of us are yet ready to pay the price. But at least if we are ready to walk, work towards gaining the willingness to surrender ourselves, we, we, we're on the right track. Yeah, that that helps. I, I think that that's what I was looking for. Is that yeah. you keep you keep trying it, even though yeah. I, I mean, you're right. I I don't think that it's possible right now to give everything up, and it feels that you are invested in the world, and you might realize that this is not going to help me in the long run. But you're still it. You can't help it. So yeah. My, but keep trying, keep trying, and maybe you'll get somewhere. That's yeah. I guess that's what I not maybe I, certainly. So if we are following okay. this path we are definitely going in the right direction. So we will definitely be going, going in the right direction to the extent to which we persevere in trying to follow this path. Why don't we try to Thank squeeze in one you. other quick question. If anybody wanted, has one on the tip of their tongue, now's the time to speak up. Maybe one, one, one short question. Yeah. Uh, what is meant in Indian philosophy with the term Parambrahman? There is only one reality. In some philosophies, they make a distinction between Brahman and Parabrahman, as if there are two, but that's not that. Anyone who talks about Brahman and Parabrahman as if they're two things, if there's something beyond Brahman, then that's dualism. There is actually exactly. only one thing, whether you call it Brahman or Parabrahman or Paramatman, you are that, Tatvamasi. That's the important point. What The name that's given to it is unimportant. The fact is you alone are what actually exists. Bhagavan expresses it beautifully in the first sentence of the seventh paragraph of Nana. He says, Yatatamai Ulladu Atmasarupamondre. What actually exists is Atmosur is only Atmosurupa. Atmosurupa means the real nature of ourself. In other words, ourself as we actually are alone is what actually exists. Yeah. But Indian philosophy, there are numerous Indian philosophies. That is innumerable uh, schools of philosophy. And within each school of philosophy, there are innumerable different levels of understanding. Even in Advaita, people understand Advaita in very, very different ways. There, and there, within Advaita, there are many different levels of explanation to suit people at different levels of, of, um, of understanding. What Bhagavan's teachings represent is Advaita in their very purest and deepest form. 
but not all Advaitins will be ready to accept Bhagavan's teaching because many Advaitins, they like the philosophy of Advaita, they don't try to put it into practice. Whereas Bhagavan's teachings are all about practice. Because what's the use of philosophy if it's not practical? It may it may give us philosophy may give us some consolation, but it won't take us very deep unless we actually put it into practice. So the practice of Advaita is self-investigation and self-surrender. And you're suggesting we can do that even when we're preoccupied, we're busy, we have a, a nine-hour job every day, or however. Who we... is preoccupied? It is the person we seem to be is preoccupied. Let that person be preoccupied. We have to separate ourselves from that person. This, according to its, according to its destiny, this person has to experience certain things. In order to experience what it has to experience, it has to do certain actions. Those actions it will be made to do. We need not be concerned about this person or about its actions. What we are investigating is who am I? In other words, we are not in, we are investigating our own being. So our concern is with being, not with doing. So let anything be done. Let this person do whatever it's meant to do in accordance with its prarabdha. Our concern should be to know our being, to know who am I. Which we do in our practice, which I think this is practice. Yeah, yeah. That's Michael. the whole point of the practice. 